Now, this uh, is probably the last in our series in John's Gospel for now. God willing, uh, we'll come back to it another time and, and pick up where we leave off. Uh, it's a little bit of a shame not to get to the end of, of chapter 8, because Jesus really lays out who he is when he says to the Jews, before Abraham was born, I am. And that's not just bad grammar from Jesus. He's using the name God gave for himself. Uh, way back, Moses asked for God's name uh, so that he could tell the Israelites, and God said, I am who I am. Uh, tell the Israelites that I am has sent you. Jesus claims to be God. The Jews get it, and they try to, they try to kill him on the spot, but he slips away. That would have been a great way to finish the series. I actually thought we would have uh, an extra week doing something else. That. I thought we might be finished last week where Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and I'll give him streams of living water. Um, that would have been a great place to finish as well. Uh, so didn't really plan to finish where we're finishing, but uh, look, we are. And even though we've taken some big chunks of John's gospel this term, we're not going to rush through uh, verses uh, 753 to 811. And that's because, as you might see by now, if you have it open, these verses are kind of separated off a little bit in John's gospel and introduced by a phrase along the lines of, the earliest manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have John 753 to 811. So this is a passage that we're not sure about for some reason. Uh, well, we can't go past that. Uh, even if the end of chapter 8 would have been a great place to stop. So let's read uh, John 7:53 to 8:11, and we'll talk about that together. Let's read. Uh, so it says, Then each went to his own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered round him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commands us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Well, there are lots of mugs in our house. Uh, now, my favorite coffee mug is decorated with four rows of birds. The top row is made up of wrens, tiny little birds with their tails stuck up. Uh, below the wrens, there's a row of blue tits. Below the blue tits are the bullfinches, although the colors are not quite right. Uh, and around the bottom, 
as if they were as common as the rest, are the green woodpeckers, uh, taunting me that I've never seen one. <laughs> it's a lovely little mug, just the right size for a cup of coffee, definitely my favorite. But in the third row of birds, one of the bullfinches is missing. And it's been replaced by the artist, because it's painted, I guess, uh, painted mug. It's been replaced by what I think is a cuckoo. And that's a nice little joke, if it's true, because the cuckoo is a bird that often turns up where it doesn't belong. Uh, cuckoos don't build their own nests. They lay an egg in another bird's nest, and they let the other bird uh, do all the work of sitting on the egg, keeping it warm, hatching it, feeding the chick, uh, and, and getting the chick ready to leave. Uh, in fact, the cuckoo chick is usually a little bigger than the others and can push the other chicks out of the nest uh, so that it gets all the food that's brought by mum and dad, uh, who are not really the mum and dad. Uh, the cuckoo doesn't belong there, and it's, it's not very nice. It doesn't, it's not very nice, is it? Um, our passage today also doesn't seem to belong in John's gospel, although uh, unlike the cuckoo, we probably quite like this story in these verses. It's a great story, isn't it? Some bitter, um, hypocritical, religious guys try to use a woman to trick Jesus, but Jesus outsmarts them and shows kindness to her. We love it. Love that. But we do have to be careful because, like the cuckoo, it probably doesn't belong. And we're going to start with that idea. <clears throat> this, this story probably doesn't belong in John's gospel. Our passage today, as I said, is, is separated off in John's gospel. It's introduced by a phrase like, the earliest manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have John 7:53 to 8 verse 11. And if you look up the, the commentaries from many of the top scholars of the New Testament today, you'll find that most of them strongly agree that this was not part of John's gospel as it was originally written by John. Uh, but was added centuries later. And the evidence goes something like this. Uh, the story is missing from all the Greek manuscripts of John from before the 5th century. So what's that, the 400s? So before the 400s, this story isn't in the copies of John. The earliest church fathers who wrote books explaining John's gospel don't make any mention of this story as if it's not there in their copies of John. I think that's what it means by the ancient witnesses. Um, in fact, the text makes perfect sense if you leave out the story and just read from 7 verse 52 straight into 8 verse 12. Uh, remember that the Bible didn't have verse numbers until about 500 years ago to help us find our way around. The verse numbers don't come from the original writers and they don't come from the, uh, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in later copies of John, uh, where this story does show up, it can be found in several different places other than here. It can be found inserted in two different places, or two other places in chapter 7, and one in, in chapter 21. Uh, and lastly, uh, the style and vocabulary is a little different from uh, John's gospel in a few ways. And one example of that is that this is the only place in John where we find the Greek word that's behind uh, teachers of the law in verse 3, or maybe have scribes. It's the only, only place where John uh, seems to use that. A bit confusing, isn't it? And it's a bit disturbing, too. 
Uh, because it sounds like what I'm saying is we can't trust the Bible. Uh, well, don't panic. <laughs> don't panic. Let's rewind a little bit and talk about where our Bibles come from. Um, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. The first printed New Testament that came off a printing press uh, was published in uh, 1516 by a, a chap called Erasmus. And, and by the way, since we mentioned William Tyndale uh, earlier, it seems like it was an Erasmus Greek New Testament that he used to help produce the Bible in English. Uh, so there's just lots going on in the 1500s, especially with the invention of the printing press. It really changed the world. But before the printing press uh, was, was invented to create books, for 1400 years, uh, the New Testament was passed down by handwritten copies. In other words, people sat and copied out the New Testament. Can you imagine doing that? Uh, imagine copying out the New Testament by hand. But if it's important, then people will do it. Uh, in fact, if you visit the Chester Beatty Library in Dublin, uh, you can see handwritten copies of the four Gospels, uh, large portions of Paul's letters, and parts of Revelation, copies all from around 150 to 200 AD. Um, this picture shows uh, four sheets that, that give about a chapter, chapter's worth of 1 Corinthians. I think most of what's there, the four pages at the bottom, uh, I think it's uh, mostly 1 Corinthians 14 and a bit of 15. And you can visit the Chester Beatty Library, uh, or a museum for free, uh, outside of pandemic season, you know, when it's open. Uh, and you can see these for yourself, or at least you can see a few parts at a time, whatever's on display at the time. They, they're very delicate, uh, as we all will be when we're 1,800 years old. So, look, the words of the New Testament were kept for us by faithful, hardworking people who copied them out for us by hand. Now, here's the amazing part. When we compare the New Testament uh, to other important books of the time, we can spot two big differences. Um, one is how many copies we have. For other important books, we have two or 10 or 50 or 100 or 200 copies. For the New Testament, we have about 5,800 copies. Um, the other difference is how close the earliest copy was to the original when the original was written. For other important books, that's a gap of 20, uh, 200, 400, sometimes a thousand years between the original and the earliest surviving copy. Um, the, for the New Testament, the oldest copies are about 40 years after the original. So the New Testament has loads more copies starting much closer to the time, and that's just what we have that survived until today. Uh, how many thousands more copies didn't last this long? Uh, no other ancient book comes close to all this. Now, what does it mean? Well, having so many copies means that we find differences. Let's think about it. If we had a whole class of children uh, who learned and recited a poem, uh, and they did it one at a time for some reason that I didn't think about, uh, we would, they would make mistakes. Some of them would make mistakes, uh, just little ones here and there, and we'd start to spot a few differences. But the more kids there are in the class, the more sure we can be about the true version of the poem. Um, if we only had two copies of John's Gospel, and one of them had today's stories in it and one of them didn't, we wouldn't know what to do, would we? 
But when we have hundreds and hundreds, and we know which ones are the oldest and where they all came from, well, we can trace back what John really wrote for us. So how come this story is in our Bibles then? Well, we don't know for sure, or at least not yet. I think it probably did happen. I, th- I think the story probably did happen. Uh, I, there, were, there was also a culture, wasn't there, of, of storytelling and remembering by speaking. Remember, people used to learn huge parts of the, 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 the Bible as well, not just copy them. They used to commit it to memory. I think the story probably did happen. Uh, it was probably a well-known story about Jesus that was remembered and retold and eventually was written in uh, to John's gospel. Uh, then it was copied as if it was part of John. Then it appeared in the King James version in English, uh, which happened a little while after Tyndale, and it's been quite hard to put the story down into the footnotes since then. Uh, so let's, look, let's sum up, because we want to get on to other things here, but let's sum up. We don't have the original copies of the New Testament books written by the apostles themselves. That's probably a good thing, isn't it? Because we know ourselves. We'd probably put them somewhere special, an amazing uh, case. We'd charge money to come and see them. We'd begin to worship the books instead of, you know, reading what they say and obeying them. Um, What we do have is thousands of good copies written out by hand, Uh, starting very close to the events of the New Testament, copies where we can compare uh, and use to be sure of what the apostles wrote. It's worth saying as well that I don't have to start a sermon like this every week. In fact, I have never started a sermon like this uh, in the however many hundreds of passages I've preached uh, because there are very few places in the Bible where a thing like this pops up. And when scholars have found differences between copies uh, of the New Testament It's never been anything that would change the historical facts or the truth or teaching of the Bible or what we believe or how we live as Christians. Basically, it doesn't happen very often and it doesn't change anything. So when I say that I agree that uh, with the the majority of scholars that this story of this woman is not part of the Gospel of John, you should not think, oh, yikes, we can't be sure about anything or how can we trust the Bible at all? Actually, quite the opposite. Um, we could be thankful that God is sovereign, uh, that for 2,000 years He has directed the, the copying and later the printing and overall the, the spreading of His Word, and He has ordered things so that the few uncertainties that remain today don't change anything about the Christian faith. That's pretty amazing when you think about it. And it's like no other book. It's flabbergasting when you compare it to other ancient books, and I think we should worship God for that. So what will we do with this story today then? We've read it. We've talked about it quite a lot. If it doesn't belong in the Bible, then it doesn't have the same authority as the Bible, does it? Uh, I think it happened. Uh, We love the story, but that doesn't make it God's Word. We could read a great story about William Tyndale or any of the other people uh, in this book but I can't preach those stories because they're not God's Word. We can learn lots from those people, but that's not God's Word. So what can we do? Well, we can't use this story to teach anything that's not taught somewhere else in our Bibles. Uh, But the main point of this story does echo what we learn 
just about everywhere else in our Bible. So for today, what we're going to do is read the story, uh, find out what it tells us about Jesus, and we'll use it as a picture of what the Bible definitely teaches in other places. So let's look then at two lessons from the Bible that we can see in this story. And here's the first. God's law shows that we are all sinners. God's law shows that we are all sinners. Let's read uh, half of the story again from the start of chapter 8. So Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. Pardon me. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, sorry, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So Jesus is teaching in the temple courts when the Jewish authorities bring in this woman uh, that they say was caught in adultery. And I know some of the boys and girls uh, joining won't really know what that means, but it means that, that she and a man were, were behaving as girlfriend and boyfriend, even though they were each already married to other people. So that's not really good, is it? And God's law said it was very, very wrong and very serious. And they're right that uh, it does say that God's law does say that people should be put to death for adultery. Not just the woman, as they say, but both the woman and the man. Uh, They had to be punished very severely because being unfaithful to your husband or wife is like being unfaithful to God. And God was calling his people, his whole nation, to live differently, to live good lives. How come the authorities only brought the girlfriend and not the boyfriend? Why are they only shaming her? Well, some things never change, do they? Um, Jesus said in John 7, 24, that the Jews didn't really care about the law. John 7, 24. Uh, They just liked to make a show of it. And they liked to look like they were good people. And what they're really trying to do is trap Jesus. See, if Jesus said that they should let this woman go, then the Jews will say he breaks God's law. If Jesus says they should punish her, well, if they kill her, they'll be breaking Roman law, and they'll, and they'll, they'll string him up for that. But Jesus will also look just like the Jewish leaders. No better, no different, nothing really new about Jesus. So what is Jesus going to do? Well, verse 6, Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. So Jesus writes or draws in the sand. There's no point trying to guess what he wrote because, or drew because uh, we don't know. But he makes them wait, and the tension's rising. Uh, and what's he going to say? Well, what he says is, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And then they all drift away. Now, maybe Jesus means that because God's law finds us all guilty somewhere, somehow, none of us is fit to judge. 
Maybe Jesus means that God's law finds us all guilty of the same crime that she has committed, especially given what he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, that, that looking and longing are sinful as well. And grown-ups, we know that sins of this kind, well, they're often in the news, aren't they? They're often going on, and they're often close by. Um, maybe the Jews are worried about what Jesus knows. I think this is probably the most likely in a way. Um, we've seen in John's gospel uh, before uh, that before they'd even met, Jesus knew people. Jesus knew Nathaniel in chapter 1. Lord, how do you know me? Uh, he knew the Samaritan woman in chapter 4. Come and meet a man who told me everything I ever did. Uh, and he knew the paralyzed man he healed in chapter 5, saying, stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. Jesus knows people. He knows every person. I think no one in this crowd would want to be the first to step up, stone in hand, only for Jesus to call out his guilt in front of everyone. We are all sinners. And we can preach that this morning, not because it's in this story, but because it's in the whole Bible. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. So what about you? I mean, if you were standing in that crowd feeling morally superior, as we often do, feeling self-righteous, would you have stepped forward uh, and, and risked having Jesus share details of your past or present? Of course not. And yet we stand in this crowd every day. Every day. Every day we look down on other people, people we meet, people we live beside, people we work with, uh, people we pass in the street. Did you hear about... We stand in this crowd every day as if we belong to some jury judging others. We've got the high ground, you know, but God's law shows that we are all sinners. And if we're confronted with it, our consciences will confirm it. There is no way we would risk anyone putting our record on display. God's law shows that we are all sinners. And wonderfully, Jesus does not put our record on display. Uh, instead, Jesus saves us and calls us to sin no more. Jesus saves us and calls us to sin no more. Everyone in the crowd drifts away, and so this story ends with, with two people standing alone in the silence. Jesus and this sinful woman. Um, verse 10, Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. <clears throat> the remarkable thing about this story is that there is someone present who is without sin. Jesus said, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the, thirst, the, the first to throw a stone at her. And no one else was without sin, so they left. But there is someone present who is without sin. There is someone present who is qualified to judge. There is someone present who has been appointed by none other than God himself to do exactly that, to judge. In chapter 5, Jesus claimed that God the Father had entrusted all judgment to the Son. 
to Jesus. Jesus is without sin. Jesus is the judge of all. He will come again to judge the living and the dead, says the Apostles' Creed, summarizing the Bible. Surely now Jesus will judge this woman. But John 3.17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already, says John in chapter 3. Well, why? Because we're all sinners. We're all guilty. We know it. But John 3, 18, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. What does this mean? Well, let me warn you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we can do whatever we want and Jesus won't judge us. It doesn't mean that love is love and follow your heart and how can it be wrong if it feels so right. Jesus doesn't say any of that to this woman. She is guilty, along with her uh, strangely absent partner who was not dragged to Jesus. She is in the wrong. She's never decla- she doesn't protest her innocence. Jesus doesn't say she's innocent. Quite the opposite at the end of the story. Jesus doesn't say any of that to her. She is in the wrong. Her sin counts against her. It felt so right, but it was so wrong. So what does it mean? If it doesn't mean that Jesus won't judge, what does it mean? Well, it means that when sinners come to Jesus, he will not condemn us. Instead, he gives us his mercy and his grace. He gives mercy by taking the right punishment that we do deserve, taking it for us at the cross. And he gives grace, welcoming us into the home of God as if we had never sinned. We don't know what Jesus uh, drew in the sand here, but perhaps he drew a line in the sand. Uh, Jesus draws a line in the sand. He forgives, he welcomes, he commands us to come and leave our lives of sin. Turn from sin. Repent. Do a U-turn. Leave sin behind. Leave it in the rear view mirror. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Leave your life of sin. Stop it. Not mainly because you fear judgment from others or even from God himself. Leave your life of sin because you have met God in Jesus and found him to be loving and merciful and gracious. Stop sinning against God because God is wonderful and he has saved you and you love him and want to dedicate your whole life to pleasing him because nothing could be more right or more worthwhile, or more pleasurable. Jesus saves us and calls us to sin no more. That's the lesson of this story. God's law shows that we are all sinners, but Jesus saves us and calls us to sin no more. That's the lesson here, and it's a lesson that echoes. Um, No, it, it resounds around the New Testament. It's in the Gospels. It's in Galatians, it's in Ephesians 2, it's in Philippians 1, it's in Colossians 3, it's in 1 Peter 1, it's in 1 John. It's all over the place. 
the idea that Jesus will come to judge the world. Many will be condemned for their sin, but if we come to Jesus, we are forgiven, we are rescued, we are welcomed, we are loved. In Jesus, we are given a new future in God's sinless kingdom. We're given a new purpose to become more like Jesus. We're given a new helper, the Holy Spirit, uh, who lives in us. We turn from sin and we trust in him. We live for him now because of that encounter of grace with Jesus. The best place to read about all this is probably Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, there's Romans 8. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The requirements of the law are met in us. We are counted as law keepers and we live by the Spirit, putting to death the mid misdeeds of the body because we are God's children. That's Romans 8. Read that today. Or there's Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The encounter of of mercy and grace leads to transformation. Or best of all, perhaps Romans 6. And I'm not going to preach a new sermon on this, but I do want to read it because it's just fantastic. Uh, I want to read verses 1 to 14, and then I promise we're almost, almost done. So let me just read these verses fairly slowly, and then we'll wrap up. Uh, Paul says, what shall we say? Uh, what should we say about, about all this grace, this forgiveness? Uh, should we just go on sinning so that grace may increase? Um, by no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. And now if we live with Christ, we believe that we will also believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather Offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master. 
because you are not under law, but under grace. This woman was brought and accused under law, and in Jesus she met grace, and she was told, leave your life of sin. The cuckoo does not belong in another bird's nest, and this story may not belong in John's gospel. But the point of this story is all over the Bible. We don't belong with God because of our sin. God's law shows that we are all sinners. But Jesus saves us and calls us to sin no more. And so Romans 6.14, Sin shall not be your master because you're not under law, but under grace. (laughs) There are so many ways that we can go wrong in the same way that this woman goes wrong in this story. We can make happiness our idol and take a twisted view of what we need to bring us happiness. And we can act on it in ways that go go against our our maker and against his design and against the well-being of other people as well. Do you need to look again at the crowd in this story? drifting away with the realization that God's law shows that we're all sinners? Would you, have, would you have self-righteously dragged this woman to Jesus? Would you keep her at arm's length from the church? Or did Jesus come to seek and save people exactly like her and exactly like you? Do you need to hear today that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, That he is our judge. He is uniquely uh, qualified and and fully able to throw the book at us for our sin, whether that's for um, adultery or hypocrisy or or something else. Do you need to to sort of stand with the woman in this story and and realize that you will stand one-on-one with Jesus, who is qualified to judge But you need to remember that he came not to condemn, nor to condone, but to take our sin on himself at the cross, to forgive us, to welcome us, and to call us to a life not of sin, but of true satisfaction and true joy. Do you need to hear that Jesus calls his people to leave our lives of sin? He paid for our sin. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? You're not a slave to sin. You've been bought by God at the cost of his son. Give yourself to this God of grace. Why don't we pray? Um, Pray for God's help to take these things to heart. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. And when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Father, thank you that in Jesus we meet uh, not hypocrisy, but true holiness. 
Thank you that in him we meet not condemnation, but mercy and grace. Thank you that in him you call us not to the fruitless hunt for selfish happiness, but to everlasting joy in him. Remind us of his grace today. Help us to live in its light for his glory and our good. And we pray with Christians through the ages, almighty and everlasting God, you are always more ready to hear than we to pray and to give more than either we desire or deserve. But pour down upon us the abundance of your mercy, forgiving us those things of which our conscience is afraid and giving us those good things which we are not worthy to ask, but through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.